In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Back in the late 90s, there was a movie called Pleasantville. Within the movie, Pleasantville is the name of a black and white 1950s sitcom about the idyllic Parker family in the small town they live in. It's basically Leave it to Beaver. Watching the TV show Pleasantville offers high schooler David an escape from the very real, hard, and scary situations in his life. He's socially awkward, doesn't have his group at school. His parents have divorced, and his mom, whom he lives with, is still trying to figure life out. In David's classes, they're teaching about AIDS and climate change and the dimming vocational prospects for graduates as they move out into the workforce. But in Pleasantville, all things are predictably pleasant. Everyone knows their prescribed roles and plays it dependably and contentedly. We get the impression that if he could make it so, David would transport himself back in time so that he could live in Pleasantville forever. Many of us might be able to relate to David's wistfulness about a time when things were simpler and folks could be relied upon to fulfill their roles and be there for one another. Even before our recent social distancing and self-isolation, there's been much concern about the erosion of social connection, the breakdown of neighborhoods, lower rates of participation in organizations, and the replacement of real relationship with virtual and fantasy ones. People are bowling alone, as Robert Putnam coined. Even more troubling to some is the breakdown of a more basic American institution, the family. Many folks are understandably concerned about the high rates of divorce, the scattering of extended families, and the decline in actual time spent together as a family. In light of all of this, some folks, like David in Pleasantville, look nostalgically to the communities of the past in which people seemed more connected, attentive to one another, and supportive. That was a time, we say, when people really knew how to take care of each other. But in the words of that great societal sage, Billy Joel, the good old days weren't always good. Our gospel passage from John refuses to accommodate itself to our nostalgic view of the good old days. All our presumptions about the strength and health of earlier communities and family systems collapse when we read this text. Because each of the support groups we assume used to be strong fails to deliver. In today's story, Jesus restores the sight of a man born blind from birth. We're going to call this man Harry because we're going to talk a lot about Harry and he needs a name. In addition to the healing itself, we get to observe the reaction of Harry's community, his family, and the religious authorities. And nothing plays out the way we might expect. The first surprise is the reaction of the community. After his healing, they do not recognize Harry. 
Isn't it odd that people who knew him well as a blind man couldn't recognize him once he recovered his sight? Harry has lived in their midst his whole life. His neighbors have interacted with him, perhaps helping him cross the street or draw water. They have worshipped with him. Why do they fail to recognize him after he's healed? Is it because all they noticed about him was his blindness? Had they defined him by what they perceived to be his shortcoming or challenge? Did they put Harry in a category box, give themselves permission to know nothing more nuanced or deeper about him, and then happily go on their self-focused way? And what about Harry's family? You would think they would be overcome with gratitude and praise at the restoration of their son's sight. His entire life, he's been unable to see the flowers and the trees, the buildings and the sky, or even the faces of his parents. They, above everyone, should know what struggles their son has endured. And yet, they are circumspect and terse in their response to the questions of the religious authorities. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We do not know how it is he sees now, nor who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Are you kidding me? Where is the joy, the thanksgiving, the glory given to God? Harry's parents fear about their own situation supplants their joy. They are so laser focused on protecting themselves that they abandon Harry to the authorities, throwing him under the bus. Finally, we have the disturbing reaction of the religious authorities who seem to want to control the narrative of this whole healing thing. The Pharisees do not want to hear or believe Harry's story because it opposes the story they want to tell. They want Jesus to be a sinner, not the hero. They don't want to believe that there is someone walking around doing God's work apart from them. They want a different explanation for Harry's healing, one that lets them retain control over all religious goods and services. In an attempt to force an answer they can accept, the religious authorities question Harry, question his family, question Harry again, and then pronounce judgment on Harry. They are so intent on protecting what they know, they are unwilling to see God's work and presence right in their midst. Because Harry is unable to answer with anything but the truth, a truth they find too inconvenient to accommodate, the religious authorities cast him out. The community fails him. His family fails him. The religious authorities fail him. Instead of being embraced and celebrated for this miraculous healing that's taken place, Harry is left even more isolated than before. Although, perhaps that's not true, in that Harry seems to be less isolated from himself. I find Harry to be one of the most appealing folks Jesus heals in all of Scripture. 
He is plain spoken. He tells the truth. And yet he's continuing to process his understanding of this thing that has happened to him. His is not an instant conversion, something that we good Episcopalians might be a bit suspicious of, but a conversion that evolves. Harry's assurance in what he knows to be true and who he knows Jesus to be grows over this back and forth of conversations, interrogations, and accusations. Over the course of this long story, Harry moves from identifying his healer simply as the man called Jesus to proclaiming Jesus to be a prophet, to affirming over against the Pharisees that Jesus' healing is of God, to finally professing Jesus as Lord and worshiping him. In the end, Jesus is the only one Harry can trust. And he's the only one we can trust as well. During this season of Lent, as we seek to reorder our disorder, we might ask ourselves, what relationships or groups or institutions are we placing our trust in instead of God? We are living in an unprecedented moment when fear has gripped a large swath of our society. And our realities are changing on not just a daily, but an hourly basis. At such a time as this, where does your hope lie? In whom do you trust? Clearly, we do not live in Pleasantville. And the truth is, we never did. We are not to yearn for a rose-colored, idyllic past we believe can better meet our needs and secure our lives. We are to trust that right here, right now, regardless of the market or the precariousness of our employment or the reality that we might get ill, God holds us in his hands. If, we are, if our lives are grounded in him, then we have everything that we need. The peace and hope, the equanimity and kindness, the grace and generosity of we who are followers of Jesus can be a balm and witness to an anxious and despairing world. Let us, in such a time as this, embody the words of Julian of Norwich, spoken all those centuries ago. And all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of thing shall be well. Amen.